There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark, and this week our arts and books editor, Samir Rahim, will be talking to the writer and translator Miranda France about the world of literary translation. First, though, I'm here in the studio with Samir as well as Prospect's political correspondent, Alex Dean. And Alex, as if nerves weren't frayed enough already, your mind is turning now to a general election. Well, a general election is usually kind of the go-to way that Westminster would reset a deadlock um, and everything's in stalemate at the moment and <laughs> as we've been seeing with all these indicative votes and so on there doesn't seem to be a majority for any one outcome. Now normally the way that uh, the system would reboot kind of like restarting a computer would be to kind of uh, take it back to a general election um, in the hope that what was returned was a parliament that maybe could coalesce around uh, a coherent option. Um, so kind of just been musing on the possibility of a general election in 2019. And obviously, mm. there's a lot of chatter about how likely that is. Um, and I think that's, you know, obviously a very big, interesting question. But almost as interesting is the question of just how ridiculous that general election would actually turn out to be. Because uh, what on earth would the Tory party stand for? I mean, it, it's completely split. Would it, you know, stand on Theresa May's deal? Would that be in the manifesto? Would all the MPs kind of then disown that manifesto. Um, so I think if there is an early snap contest, it will actually be <laughs> slightly farcical. I, just as you're talking there, thinking back into what I can remember from um, A-level history, not in 10, there were two general elections, two general elections to solve the same problem after the people's budget. And both of them were quite close to being draws. Um but at least one side knew what it wanted, I guess. Whereas here, you've not just got a government that's split down the middle, you've got an opposition as well. I mean, it would just be an absolutely absurd situation where parties completely riven down the middle um, and couldn't kind of coalesce around any single message (laughs) at all. And then there's, uh, as you say, the question of returning a draw. We're in a hung parliament at the moment, and that's part of why we're in this mess. Um, And you look at the polls, and it's still seems quite stalemated at least as far as i can make out and mm. there's no guarantee whatsoever that um you know if if the tories were polling significantly ahead maybe you could make an argument that uh if they kind of throw it back to the people in the general election then come back with a you know thumping majority they can mm. actually get through <laughs> government get through its policy but i think there's a real risk that we we hold the general election and uh the map at the end of it in the commons ends up looking exactly the same don't we need to acknowledge that the parties have split 
I mean, the Tories are now the ERG or Brexiteers or hard Brexiteers um, and the Dominic Greaves of this world. And when people are going out to vote, it should be Conservative brackets uh, Remainer, Conservative brackets Brexiteer. Well, it's totally uh, a new lens. Remain Leave is completely a new lens through which to see all of this and uh, is just as big a divide, maybe even bigger a divide as the traditional party lines. I mean, John Curtis, kind of, you know, in my opinion, probably Britain's smartest sophologist who, um, you know, is a real expert on this kind of thing, does think that Leave and Remain speaks more to people's deep-seated attitudes than actual party allegiance now because it's all about how you view the world and kind of open or closed and um, you know outward looking or more nationalistic um, so I think you're right of course we saw you mentioned Dominic Grieve we saw Nick Bowles actually resign the whip uh, in a remarkable moment in the Commons mm. but I mean what was striking about that in a way is that he left the Conservative Party not once but twice and within about a week, because he'd already resigned from his local party, which ordinarily would mean you'd left the party. But in these times, the whip said, oh, you can stay for a bit. And then he started falling out with the whip. And and now he's resigned the whip. Meanwhile, the whip has been attacking the prime minister. I mean, it is beyond farce now, isn't it? Well, I mean, so that's the thing, isn't it? So the situation, for all sorts of reasons like those, seems completely untenable. And there's these deep currents um, that make you think that a general election is likely. Would the Tory, I mean, it would involve Tories voting no confidence in their own government. And I mean, would they ever take the risk? Would they risk letting, letting Corbyn have the keys to number 10? I feel like that's such a hard check that actually, I, despite everything, I don't think a general election is going to happen in 2019. I think it's possible, but I don't think it's likely just because I just can't see Tories willing to risk a Corbyn premiership. We saw indicative votes in Parliament, the the votes for a, a confirmatory referendum seemed to be pretty high to me. I think it didn't win, but it was only a few votes off. The the second referendum, do you think that's that's the way to to solve this? Um, I mean, that's what I'm in favour of <laughs> personally. Um, the really interesting thing, though, is when you if you kind of look at the Commons from a bird's eye view, and you can kind of colour in the seats as remain and leave, um, and you can kind of add up preferences and you get these headline eyes and nose. Um, and that's definitely the first thing to look at, those kind of headline numbers. But remember that over the top of that, we've got the distorting lens, the extra factor of party allegiance. And that's just as important to look at. So I think the first thing to look at is how many MPs vote for any one outcome and what there's a majority for. But the second thing to look at is which party the MPs come from. And with the referendum? Well, with a referendum, it was deeply, deeply unpopular amongst Tories. And we have a Tory government. So mm. even though it came pretty close, it, ultimately we still have, uh, you know, a parliament that legislates, but a government <laughs> a government that leads. And it, those two things uh, both need to be taken into account, I think, um, in such a way that means that seemingly semi-popular pre- preferences nothing's popular remember that nothing's popular but seemingly uh, semi-popular outcomes mm. um actually when you factor in the, the reality they have to be implemented by Tory pm it's quickly become um not very likely at all and there's the question of what the what the question or the option would be because if it was um may's deal versus remain you could just see brexiteers boycotting it can't you because they don't believe brexit's on the ballot then 
you know, what I'm most worried about is the idea of no deal on a referendum ballot paper and winning. Um, because of no deal, I doesn't really... It's almost like what we had in 2016 where people voted for a negative, but times times 10. <laughs> it's not a coherent outcome. It's like you'd quickly have hard Brexiteers, you know, you'd quickly have the government put in place mitigating measures for, you know, we'd, we'd make some side agreements on flights and keep the flights moving and keep the ports open. And then Brexiteers would start complaining that it was no deal in name only. And quickly, <laughs> you'd have exactly the same debate <laughs> we're having now, but at this really weird, deeper level. Um, so that's actually my biggest fear in all of this is that there's a people's vote, no deals on the paper, wins, and then <laughs> there's just total meltdown. And if there's one of three options, then it only needs 34%. Imagine that. Turning out to vote. Yeah. Well, um, perhaps on that note, it's um, a good moment to move on to your topic, Samir, which I think is the power of negative thinking. Yes, uh, bouncing off a piece which appeared in Harper's uh, this month by Christian Lawrenson, the book critic, um, talking about the fate of the book review in the age of the algorithm. Essentially, his argument is that there are too many positive um, evaluations of cultural products, too many positive book reviews, too many positive television reviews, and that um, uh, we need to have more negativity around. Um, They're often a better read, aren't they? They can be, yeah. I mean, the first thing to note is that this is a perennial argument. Um, Harper's in 1959 published um, a famous essay called The Decline of Book Reviewing by Elizabeth Hardwick, who was complaining almost exactly of the same thing <laughs> i think about 15 years ago there was another movement saying that there was too much negative book reviewing people like dale peck and james wood were destroying first novelists with glee and that what we needed was more positivity uh, and the magazine called the believer was set up almost in exact response to that okay. so these things do um, come and go these arguments I think the argument is quite powerful, though, because as as Lawrenson does say, um, there is no value in a positive opinion if you can't already give a negative opinion um, as well. And I wonder whether in the age of the Internet, although it does seem to encourage more snark, more criticism in terms of um, uh, people can just say what they want and they don't have the sort of the polite barriers that editors and magazines like Harper's and Prospect um put up as it were no one edits your tweets um i wonder also whether perversity might be encouraging a kind of positivity um what i mean by that is you get clacks or cliques of authors uh, and critics surrounding particular works and it doesn't take that many of them to um push an author um, with this sort of relentless positivity. Now, people have always done that, but it's it's tended to be in private rather than in than in public. And also now, if you publish a negative book review, you can easily be taken down within a few minutes. So instead of it being an embarrassing encounter at a dinner or a literary party, you can be added in with hundreds of the, 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 the writer's fans for taking down um, their favourite film or their, their favourite book. There was the example last year of uh, Rebecca Watts, a very good poetry critic who wrote in PN Review, a rather snarky but interesting takedown of Holly McNish and um, Kate Tempest and um, a various other sort of performancey poets. Um, and it just got an incredibly negative reaction online um, because people felt that they were attacking their favourite poet and, uh, and all the rest of it. I noticed that The Guardian, which is obviously free, um, you don't need to 
uh, it's not behind a paywall. Very rarely these days, publishes negative reviews. Mm. Um, and I wonder whether that might be because um, authors are just, or critics rather, are, are holding themselves back, um, whilst others who are behind paywalls are a bit more um, above it all, as it were. I wonder if it might also be partly, if you want something reviewed very quickly, sometimes it's easier to send it to someone who you associate with a... I mean, I, I, you know, you're churning out 30 book reviews a week or whatever it is that they do. Yeah, I mean... Or did it, it used to be different, do you think? No, I think speaking, speaking as, an, as an editor, you will always try and send a book to someone who you think will enjoy it. You know, you think that somebody will um, align with it somehow try to understand it and judge it on its own terms occasionally you will send something to somebody and you'd expect them to enjoy it and they really really don't enjoy it um, and that's a surprise but that's also good in some ways because it shows that um, you're keeping up keeping up standards Smear what do you think personally about negative reviews and have you ever written one and <laughs> how did it feel I've written plenty of negative reviews hopefully justified but you do have to also take into account that you might have had a bad day or a bad week or the book just didn't suit you or you know who knows what other unconscious uh biases that might come out in, in a book review a book review is, is is actually ultimately one person's opinion hopefully it's backed up with reason and evidence um, but to take them as the last word on anything is probably a mistake. So I, I um, something that always weighs on my mind is I once wrote a positive review that had a negative line. So that's not even a negative review. <laughs> it was net positive, but just with one slight criticism. And uh, the author emailed me several times. <laughs> now, I 100% stood by. I still stand by what I said, but every time now before I criticise, I always imagine, I always put myself in the situation, would I still defend this if the author was emailing me quite a lot? And I always <laughs> make sure that's the test, <laughs> just for maintaining complete standards. <laughs> you absolutely have to be able to defend every line. I think, that's, I think that's true. The person you have to have in mind is your editor or the reader, like the person who's going to pay money to buy something. Yeah. So you can't have the author on your shoulder. You've got to have the reader on your shoulder. I've I've seen you send reviews back to writers that have pulled their punches a bit at the end and say, aren't you really saying X? You know, like get to a conclusion. And if you're going to um, take this book down in this way, be explicit about it rather than try and keep relations sweet. Yes, and it's also easier to write positive adjectives into a review than it is to unpick why the book doesn't work because you can no one will be dissatisfied if they get a few positive adjectives um the 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 the, the reader will uh, think oh well that's a pretty good book the writer will be satisfied publishers happy but you have to when you put a negative view forward you need to be able to justify it more more carefully we did have a rule at some place i used to work at which was um how many masterpieces have we declared this year <laughs> so there's, a, there's an element of grade inflation going on if you keep on using those positive terminologies. Thanks very much to you both now, and let's press on to our main event, where Samir's going to talk to Miranda France about Don Quixote, Eleanor Ferranti, and why it's possibly Nordic noir, not novels, that are driving our current love of translation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Miranda, thanks for joining us here on the Prospect Podcast. Um, works of literary translation have often seemed like the poor relation to English language productions, but recently we've seen a boom in popularity um, with Karl-Ove Knausgaard from Norwegian, Han Kang from uh, Korean, and Elena Frante from the Italian. What do you think that is? Well, I do think that the literary world is very subject to fashions, and translation is certainly having its moment. And I wonder if we might actually look uh, beyond books to television. I wonder if it started rather with The Killing, various, um, Borgen was it called, The Bridge. Uh, these were all very popular with um, audiences. And I think perhaps it opened up the idea that you could be interested in, in um, works from other countries, that they could be quite cool, that it wasn't something just for, for intellectuals. It's interesting, isn't it? When you're watching a TV show, it's in usually we, we have subtitles rather than things being dubbed in this country. When you're reading a, a novel, um, the other language seems to be completely absent. And that's a, that's a considerable difference, isn't it? It's almost as if the translator uh, has to bring the entire thing into the English language. You can almost sometimes even forget that you're reading a translation. They do have to do that, and I think the temptation when you first start translating is to do that too well, to think, oh, I know a, a, a great phrase for that in English. I can make it sound as if it was never in Spanish or German or French, and I think that's a mistake. You want somehow to preserve some kind of tone from the original, not only from the original language, but from the original author. You don't want to make it all your own voice. So that's quite a tricky balancing act. I wonder whether... The Elena Ferrante novels, which I don't read Italian, so I don't know how well, as it were, they're translated. But in English, they read really smoothly uh, and nicely. Anne Goldstein's done a wonderful job. In, in, she's an editor of The New Yorker, and sometimes I feel like I'm reading New Yorkerish prose that just sort of takes me through the novel. So I wonder whether when we credit uh, the success of these novels, how much the translators themselves and their skill is part of it as well. Well, yes, and actually it's interesting that you mention um, the Ferranti novels because I don't f think they are very well translated. I can often see what the phrase would have been in Italian, and I don't speak Italian, I speak Spanish, which is, has some similarities. 
So um, it may be that as a translator, you become rather too sensitive to to other people's styles. But yes, of course, the translator's voice is inevitably a part of, of, of what you're hearing. And that's why um, translators such as uh, Margaret Joel Costa, for example, have um, produced such wonderful versions of, of um, Spanish and Portuguese texts. Um, Rabassa, for example, Garcia Marquez said that he thought a hundred years of solitude was stronger in English than it was in Spanish. And he was, sh I'm sure he was being charming, but there's some truth in that. A really good translation can be, can add or bring a different dimension to, to the original text. In your own work, um, I want to talk about how you approach translation. So you write your own fiction, you write your own uh, non-fiction as well, um, but you also obviously do a lot of translation. Is there a is there a different way of approaching? Do you approach it in a completely different way? What are the differences? Well, the wonderful thing about translation is that it's completely free of the pressure of having to write <laughs> or of having to make something up. You know, when you're writing a novel, as you know, you've got, after you've written this page, there's a completely blank page following it. And with translation, it's uh, all those pages are filled and um, the, the anxiety of, of having to create something is taken away. So I don't find it at all an anxious process. Um, I, it's really much more for me a little bit like doing crosswords. And I was interested that Margaret Jewell Costa's father was a Times crossword compiler. Um, so you're looking for the right solution to every, to every sentence, to every paragraph. You said that um, in your piece for Prospect that translating thrives on connection and collaboration rather than the individual just writing uh, your own book. That can be easier if the author is still alive, isn't it? Because then you can, you can go and talk to them. Yes, although I don't tend to approach the author until the very last minute. And then I'll usually have um, perhaps 10 questions that I ask them. And I, and I usually find that they give me the answer I would have expected. So... I feel that the rest of the time I'm, I'm, I'm getting the right answers on my own. When I talked about collaboration, I, I really meant with other, with other linguists. And there's this wonderful um, forum, word reference. I mean, there may, there may be other ones as well, where um, linguists ask each other questions about sometimes quite uh, precise and esoteric problems and and get answers from all around the world and it's uh it's a really enjoyable collaboration whereas when i'm writing fiction for example i don't want to tell anybody about it i don't want to ask anybody's advice or um apart from research that i do i don't i don't want to collaborate until until i have to <laughs> so it's quite different and you find you're not only researching linguistic um cruxes but also you know the society or the the culture or um individual you know you talk about the design of a an s bend and um uh engineering so it brings you in, into all sorts of different areas doesn't it it does yes and i've still got the plumber who helped me with the s bend question so that was really useful but of course there's also i, I hadn't really quite thought about this until i heard another translator talking about it you don't want to do so much research that you end up knowing more than the than the reader in the original language would have known. So if the novelist is talking about, um, I don't know, some television program from decades back, and the reader from now wouldn't wouldn't know that in in the original country either, then we shouldn't start explaining 
more than would be available to the original reader. It's rather complicated, but you can you can find out too much. And I'm interested when you do eventually go and talk to the writer, um, maybe if they are very fluent in English, whether they will then um, come and pick up. You know, you, you had a you had a conversation, I think, with Alberto Manguel in your kitchen um, about um, how a description of him should be translated. Yes, uh, I was rather terrified when I was asked to translate Alberto Mangel's book because he speaks brilliant English, maybe better than I do, uh, but it's not his native language. Spanish is his native language, and he wanted a, um, a native speaker to translate his novel, um, All Men Are Liars, in which he appears as a character, rather like Paul Oster, I suppose, or um, um, various um, books of the, of, of the same sort of time. And um, and in in one section he had somebody saying, uh, Alberto Mangel's an asshole, and that's what I'd written. He said, no, no, I would never say that. I'd say an asshole. <laughs> but because I'd done everything else in British English, it seemed a little bit strange to go to that. But I can't remember how we resolved it. I do remember that we had a, quite a spirited discussion in my kitchen and we came to some sort of happy happy compromise. And he was very pleased with the end result, so it was obviously all right. <laughs> How much do you allow of yourself to be put into uh, your translations? Because often the best ones um, are the ones in which it does feel like there's a real um, collaborative effort between author and translator. Yes, I think that uh, as a writer, a writer of fiction and and a, a journalist, um, my first instinct is to try to suppress my ego <laughs> when I'm translating and not put too much of my own um, my own self into it but there's a feeling when you've read a book many times you begin to feel you know the writer quite well and you may have met them I, I, I now know most of the authors I've translated and sometimes you can see where you know their sense of humor and you can see how something would be funny in English a slightly funnier version in English perhaps than was there in the Spanish and um, that's the kind of I don't even want to call it a tweak because that sounds too like too much interference. But that's the 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 tilt perhaps that I might give sometimes. Um, and and there are other times where th there's something funny in the original that you can't you can't get as as, as well in English. So um, sometimes you can get something a bit better than there was, and sometimes you can't. Turning to classic works, one of the pleasures of reading them is in translation is that. You read one version when you're 15 or 16. I remember I read um, Don Quixote in the J.M. Cohen Penguin translation from the 1950s, I think. And then a few years later, another translation will come out and it feels like uh, you're reading a completely different book. The Edith Grossman one it feels very different in, its, uh, uh, um, in the experience of reading it. Um, the idea that the, the, the work of art isn't, isn't a sort of stable production that you can sort of read, finish and put on the shelf that there's always a new version of it it's quite it's quite an interesting way of approaching it isn't it yes I find that a, a really interesting aspect of translation because for example if you'd come across an easier version of um of Don Quixote in, in English or if you'd if you'd got a um Jane Austen rewritten for the 21st century you would feel that the original had been traduced and you wouldn't I think most of us wouldn't be very happy with that. We want to feel that we've got the real McCoy. But of course, with translation, you've never quite got the real McCoy, um, even if you read every version available. Um, 
there's that wonderful Borges story, isn't yeah, there, where yeah. somebody wants to, Pierre Menard yeah. wants to sit down and write Don Quixote exactly as Cervantes wrote it. And um, if you really think about it, you could get... I, I know some people don't read translation for that reason because they feel too upset by the thought that they're not getting um, the best possible version they could get. But really what we have to do is uh, let our hair down and think that each one will be slightly different and um, some translators will chime with us more than others. It's interesting with a text like Don Quixote, you can go back in time as well because there's Tobias Smollett translated it in uh, the, the 18th century. And although um, I'm sure that modern translators may well pick him up on the accuracy of the translation he was closer in time to Cervantes than modern translators and and in English it does give a flavour of uh, that picaresque um, uh, feeling that maybe we're more self-conscious about in, in modern times and maybe he was closer to Cervantes than we are. Well yes and he wouldn't have been using any vocabulary that has come into existence since since that time. So I suppose, yes, I suppose he is closer, but then perhaps somebody would say Edith Grossman has understood the spirit of it better. Um, I think it's impossible to say that, that, that one, one is better than the other. And of course, in Don Quixote, there's the whole joke about it being a translation in itself, isn't there? Yes, yes, he, he finds the manuscript in, um, in the marketplace in Toledo, and then he has somebody translate it for him doesn't he the original author is Cite Amete Bengali yeah Benengeli isn't Benengeli it? Yeah. and um and then he needs a translator so he um in invents this this premise that it has already gone through several other voices before it reaches his own voice so already the question of authenticity and uh, and truth is 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 part of the the fabric of the of the novel it's interesting, isn't it? When we when we try and learn languages, certainly the languages I've tried to uh, learn over the years, uh, the leap then to try and read a novel is still pretty large, and uh, we'll always be able to read more fluently in English. Personally, I will be then um, than say in Arabic, which is a language that I've I've learned or tried to learn over over the years. Um, I remember when I, my Arabic teacher, I was trying to go through Nagib Mahfouz's. Um, uh, trilogy, Cairo trilogy, and we're going page by page. And although it's complicated Arabic, in a way, what I found most interesting about that was um, you felt as you were reading it that it was almost uh, a translation of these Kyrene lives into a 19th century European novel. So it felt both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. The form, as it were, was a, was a transplantation, and I think maybe that's why they work so well in English because it and and, uh, and are easier to read than uh, some of Mafuz's other works. Yes, I can I can see how that would be. I think that perhaps there's a, there's a risk of too much being made of the difficulty of reading of reading a novel when you're beginning to learn a language and of course i can't speak for uh, some languages are much harder to to learn than others but i i remember i started reading novels in spanish and french when i was 14 or 15 and a, an awful lot of it would have would have passed me by although sometimes we had versions which had glossaries in them um which usefully gave you some vocabulary but I don't see why people shouldn't jump in and try to read as much 
as they can of, of, of a shorter work. Um, I think it's a great shame that uh, literature is pretty much not on the syllabus at all at school anymore. Um, it's depriving young people of, of learning an awful lot about other cultures that, that actually they would be interested in. And instead, they just seem to have endless conversations about the environment. So uh, I think that um, we could be bolder in our approach to, to reading in other languages. And even just, you know, the learning other languages, because in schools uh, there's been there's been a downward turn in uh, the teaching of languages and some university departments don't even have language departments anymore, do they? Yes, which is tragic, because there's an idea that everybody's going to speak English. But, of course, when you go to another country, you're, the people who speak English will be only a, a select few. And uh, you may want to talk to, you know, the person in the bakery or... Um, somebody who's 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 not in in business or e i mean even if they do speak english it's depriving yourself of such an interesting uh, linguistic experiment it, it makes you understand your own language so much better if you've seen the way that other languages work and it's i think it's 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 good for your brain just to work it in that way it's good for your soul as well because it puts you in a position of humbleness in front of somebody else and yes. where you're the person who's struggling to find the right words to buy that you know pint of milk or, or whatever yes absolutely yes um and i think um publishers currently have been so clever in repackaging uh novels as something that will appeal to um, translated fiction i'm talking about as something that will appeal to uh, to those younger readers who are travelling. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, it seemed to me when I was reading Dostoevsky, maybe at 17 or 18, those, those Penguin classics used to come with sort of uh, very dark um, old master paintings <laughs> on the front, and they just looked so forbidding. They looked as if they were for um, a, a small elite of people who could be bothered to, to tackle them. And now um, publishers are, are, are bringing out a lot of much shorter works. They're, um, they're coming out in with very attractive covers. And um, the whole thing looks so much more approachable than it used to. And in terms of reviewers talking about translation, has there been any improvement in that? You write in your piece about usually, and I, I have been guilty of this myself, so I, I thought that was an... Uh, um, uh, describing translations as sort of an artfully translated work or accurately done where you know the person hasn't read the original. Yes. Uh, I certainly had, hadn't. Um, so uh, it's almost as if we have to tick it off and then, uh, and then move on. But are translators being treated any better by reviewers now? Well, I think at least they're getting mentioned. And actually, I, had, I have a lot of... Translators get terribly cross about this, but I, I, I'm a reviewer myself, and I do have some sympathy with the reviewer because unless they've read the original and maybe another translation, it's, it's sometimes quite hard for them to tell how well, how well something is translated, and they've only got so much time. So I think um, to acknowledge the translator and to acknowledge the... the um, the skill in the in 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 the language is really about as far as you can go. I mean, unless you really do know more about um, about the author and the translator concerned. Um, the translator, as you write, is a, is a bridge between worlds, and it seems like we never needed bridges more than than now. Absolutely, yes. But I think that there is perhaps because of the dire situation we find ourselves in, there is. Uh, an increasing desire to to cross those bridges and to find ways of um, 
of knowing more about other places, either through travel or books or, or television. Miranda, thank you. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our guest, Miranda France. And thanks also to Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from in the podcast earlier here in the heart of Westminster. Rebecca Liu is this week's producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating or review, which really does help. It's going to be a positive review, of course. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye.